Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 12. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore do what, whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, as we come once again to the book of Matthew, over the next several months, walking the road to Calvary, Lord, as we come to this passage in particular, Lord, we see some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to not just pass over these like so many do. Help us not to skip these difficult things that you say. And Lord, help us not to first go out and hunt for somebody else. That must be who Jesus is talking about here. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these words and examine our own hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take this chapter and examine the people that we see every day in the mirror. To discern where we might be more like the Pharisee and the scribe rather than our Christ. Lord, it is so easy to fall into these temptations. And so, Lord, I pray that the work of the Word would do its work in our hearts and souls today, and that you would speak to us, transforming us to be more and more like Jesus, our instructor, our Messiah, our Savior. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we continue our series in the book of Matthew, and we look at one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. One of the most challenging and scathing critiques that Jesus gave of false religion. Here in this passage, here in chapter 23, he absolutely excoriates the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites, lawless, sons of hell, blind guides, murderers, snakes, 
brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Any questions about where Jesus stood with the Pharisees? (laughs) Pretty straightforward, I think. John MacArthur, in his excellent commentary on the book of Matthew, says the following. He says, Jesus' words in this passage fly from his lips like claps of thunder and spears of lightning. Out of his mouth on this occasion come the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus uttered on earth. These are such challenging words that there are some commentators who actually say, Jesus couldn't have possibly said these things. This This is Matthew talking and Matthew saying these things later in a later situation in the church. I don't believe what those commentators are saying. Those commentators are flat wrong. Jesus, our Christ, sometimes says some very difficult things. And we, as we approach these things that Jesus said here in this passage, we don't need to first take them and say, I wonder who it is in the world today that this would apply to. Because it doesn't apply to me, obviously. At that very moment, we prove ourselves to be exactly who Jesus is talking about. When, we, when our first response to the Scripture is to find out, who else do I need to condemn? Rather than going and letting the Word of God do its work in our souls to expose the places in our hearts that are not yet conformed to the image of Christ, it is that at that very moment that we prove within ourselves this pharisaical tendency towards other uh, condemnation rather than self-examination first to see whether or not we are following Christ in every area of our lives. Yes, of course, there is a time to call out the heretic. There is a time to call out the false teacher. Yes, there are occasions, even in our world today, even as we approach the end times, which we begin talking about when we get to chapter 24 and 25. There will be many false teachers in the last days, and we live in the last days. (laughs) And there are many false teachers today. But I think here in this chapter, we would do well to examine our hearts And ask ourselves some diagnostic questions to see whether or not we are truly authentic in our faith. And where it is that the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God would refine our hearts to be more like Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want my heart to be more pure, more holy, more righteous, more like Jesus. And sometimes when he puts you in the furnace, it's hot. And he melts you down and he gets the impurities out. And then he forms you to be the kind of person that is more fit for heaven. More fit for the kingdom of Christ. And that's what he does in this passage. The thing that haunts me about this passage that that really affects my soul is that it is possible for us to genuinely or for us to genuinely appear to be religiously impressive to others 
to appear to others. My goodness, you really know about, a lot about religion. And you don't know God. And you're bound for hell. That's the challenge of this passage. That's the challenge of Matthew 23. And that's the questions that I want to ask you today, whether or not we are following the path of the Pharisee or the path of our Christ. Question number one is this. Diagnostic question for authentic Christianity. Do you practice what you preach? Do you practice what you preach? From verses 1 through 3. Let's read that again. Just make sure we get it in our hearts and minds. Verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach or what they preach. That's where that phrase came from in our culture, practice what you preach. It came from Jesus. Here in this passage, we see that Jesus is recognizing that the scribes and the Pharisees have some level of authority because they sit in Moses' chair. What does that mean? Does that mean that there is an actual chair in the synagogue that is labeled Moses' chair and they sit in it? No, not at all. In fact, that particular chair in the synagogue came much later in history. It wasn't there, according to the best archaeological evidence, wasn't there. The teacher's seat wasn't there during the time of Christ. Well, what is Jesus talking about here? It's similar as if I were to say, so-and-so is the chair of Bible at Gateway Seminary. When we say that so-and-so is the chair of Bible at Gateway Seminary, that is the person who is chief in charge of all of the Bible teaching at that particular institution, at that particular seminary. And what he's saying here is he's saying that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the chair of Moses. In other words, they have the mantle of authority to teach the law of Moses to you, to the people. And what Jesus is saying here is insofar as the Pharisees teach in line with the word of God, do what they say. But here in verses 2 and 3, Jesus is actually taking on a sarcastic tone here and saying, look, as long as they teach according to the law of Moses, then do what, do what they say. But here's the problem. They talk a good talk sometimes, but they don't walk a good walk. There is an incongruity between their instruction, between their teaching, and what they do. Don't do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. The sermon coming from their lives is a hypocritical evil. It's a false teaching coming from their walk. There is an incongruence between walk and talk. And that is where the conviction comes in in this passage. And that is the question that is before us. As believers in Jesus Christ who claim Christ, is there a correspondence between our confession and our life? Is there a correspondence between what you claim about Jesus 
whether it be verbally to friends, whether it be here in church, whether it be online on social media, or wherever it might be, is does your life line up with your confession? Does the way you walk line up with the way you talk? Now, one author said the following, and let me just read it and then I'll explain it. He said this, Brendan Manning, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, in many cases, I would not recommend Brendan Manning's theology. <laughs> in fact, I don't recommend his theology. But in this case, I think he, has, he is on to something. How many people do we meet in the world today who are turned off by the faith of those who proclaim a puppet, a Savior, whose lives do not correspond to what it is that they're saying? Your life is talking so loudly, I cannot hear what you are claiming to believe. Now, I'm not talking here about perfectionism. Because if perfectionism is what Jesus was talking about here, guess what? Every one of us better pack it up and go home. Amen? Anybody here perfect? Anybody here's walk perfectly correspond to their talk? By no means. <laughs> In fact, I'm a sinner and I need repentance every day. Amen? <laughs> Anybody with me on that? Oh, yeah. And thank the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness when we confess our sins to Him. I'm not talking about perfectionism here. But what I am talking about is a humble striving. A humble striving and hunger for holiness and a life that corresponds to the teaching of the Word of God. Do you strive to, with humility, be like Christ has called you to be? That in itself is a mark of authentic Christianity. Not just a talk, but a walk that over time increasingly reflects Christ to the world. Second diagnostic question is this. First, do you practice what you preach? Second, are you living a life of humble, sacrificial service? Are you living a life of humble, sacrificial service? Look at verse 4 and verse 11 and 12. Let's add verse 11 to that. Verses 4 and verses 11 and 12 talk about the same kind of idea. Verse 4, talking about those scribes and Pharisees. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry, put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. In verse 11 and 12, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In verse 4, we find that the Pharisees and the scribes are great at loading up other people with burdens, either to make their own lives easier or to make others more dependent upon their teaching. 
But Christ calls us to follow a different path. Christ calls us not to be burdensome to others, not to heap on burden upon burden upon burden upon one another. But what is the call of Jesus? The call of Jesus is to bear one another's burdens. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of who? The law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? This is one aspect of it. Not the whole of the law of Christ in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, but certainly an important aspect of it. What is the law of Christ? To bear one another's burdens. I think this is how we fulfill the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Is to, when you see one another's burdens, we don't heap on one another's burdens, we bear one another's burdens. And where do we bear their burdens to? We bear their burdens by sharing with them, by talking with them, by helping with them, by serving one another, but also by helping each other carry our burdens to Jesus, our great intercessor, casting together our burdens upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. It's the ministry of presence. It's the ministry of prayer. It's the ministry of fellowship, of bearing one another's burdens to Christ. What is required to live a life of personal, sacrificial service? The kind of service that is exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees were doing. They were heaping burdens on others, but they were not even willing to lift a finger to move them. What is required is a ministry of caring presence. A ministry of caring presence. A church is not meant to be a dispensary of information. So many in today's world treat church as if it were simply a place where I can go and sit in rows listening to somebody talk or go and get my podcast or go and watch whatever sermon I pick that week online because it seems to fit what I'm interested in that day. (laughs) And that's it. As long as I hear something good that I like and as long as I hear some music that I like, that's my church for the week. That's it. I can check out and do my own thing. Is that church? Is that what Jesus has called us to? Here's the real danger today, and I want to be careful here because I know we're still in the middle of of all this craziness. But one of the dangers today, uh, online church is great, and I'm thrilled that you're watching. And I understand very much so the reality that some people need to be very careful with their health in these days. But at the same time, we must never pretend that isolated church with just me and Jesus is a replacement for the gathering of God's people and knowing and being known. It's simply not the same thing. Let me give you an example. This week I visited with Scott Samuelson in the hospital. Hi, Scott. <laughs> Good to see you, brother. Love you. And you know what he shared with me? 
if you don't know Scott, he's got ALS and he's getting weaker and weaker by the day. Here's what he shared with me, and he's barely able to speak, but here's what he shared with me, two things. One, he loves you all. He wanted me to tell you that. And secondly, he loves online church. He's glad it's there. But he really misses seeing you face to face. How oftentimes do we take what we have in this room what we have in life groups, what we have between services, what we have when you invite someone over to your house or someone out to lunch, or what we have on Wednesday night dinners, how oftentimes we take that for granted. And when it's taken away, either because of pandemic or because of Sickness, or because I know that there are many who are watching online who need to be there. There's some with cancer. There's some with legitimate reasons to protect their health. And I'm not talking about you. I'm glad you're here. But I'm talking about there has to come a point in our lives when we recognize that we deeply need the ministry of presence bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Why do we need that? The church is not simply a dispenser of religious information. Tie on heavy loads, but don't help anyone carry their loads. And certainly in these days, we should be calling each other. We should be ministering to each other. How do we engage in the ministry of presence, knowing and being known when you see someone who needs help? And how do you even know if somebody who needs help if you don't have a relationship with them? The only way you can know if they need, and they need help is if you spend time with them. Together in a life group, together serving together in a ministry, together around a table, together hanging out at somebody's house, together in some way where you can share your burdens with one another. When you need help or when you see somebody else who needs help or has a need, you seek to meet that need. And the needs in our community are vast. What are our greatest needs? Our greatest needs are friendship. Our greatest needs are fellowship. Our greatest needs are wisdom. Wisdom from those who have been there before and can pass on wisdom to the next generation. Wisdom to those who need who have been married for two years, who need wisdom from those who have been celebrated, who just celebrated their 50th or their 40th. We need wisdom from those who have been there before. What are some needs in our church? You, well, there's a ton of them. We, we always need help with the building and grounds team. And one of the things that happens when you're doing something with the building and grounds team is you talk and you, have, you build relationships. We need help on Wednesday nights for meals, both to help clean up and to help to serve. We need help prayer walking through our community. In our, in our church alone right now, we, we, we've got a list. We, did you know we have 50 widows within our, list, within our church? And they need to be visited and called on. The pastors can only do so much. We visit. But when you have 50 widows... It takes a while to get through everybody, especially during a pandemic. <laughs> we certainly have deacons who serve in this way. 
But the Bible never says only the deacons should visit people. <laughs> or only the pastors should go out and visit people. Not in the Bible. In fact, it says to you, bear one another's burdens. How are you bearing another's burden? How are you ministering to somebody in your life group? How are you ministering to somebody else? How are you caring for one another with some humble, sacrificial service? All right, number two, are you living a life of humble, sacrificial service? Number three, do you live for the applause of heaven rather than the applause of man? Mm. Soul-searching question Jesus asks here. Do you live for the applause of heaven or do you live for the applause of man? What are you striving for? What gives you greater joy? This, this idea that one day you will stand before God and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. You shall be given much. Or do we live for the temporal praise of man? Man, I like your post on Facebook or whatever it is. Did you know the National Institutes of alcohol and drug abuse says that 20 million Americans or 6% of the population thereabouts live with a drug or alcohol addiction today. The top addictions, top five addictions are heroin, crack, cocaine, meth, alcohol, and nicotine. Those are the top addictions. But you know, there is a drug that is just as addictive, if not more addictive than those. And that drug is the praise of man. And once you get it, it's very easy to get hooked on it as an insufficient substitute for the glory and praise of God. How do we know this is true? Look at John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. John 12, 42 and 43. You can look it up in your Bible or it'll be on the screen too. It says this, Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. They believed in him. But then a tragic three-letter word. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. Why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For ground. Because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you see how powerful that is? Do you see how deceptive it is? Living for the praise of man kept people who saw Jesus face to face, heard the voice of Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus to walk away from Jesus. Why? Because of the powerful draw of this thing that we love. The accolades of the world. The praise of man. The Pharisees in Matthew 23 and throughout the book of Matthew, what they were, what they were doing in verse 5, it says they were doing everything to be seen by others. Look at verse 5. 
that they were doing everything to be seen by others. And then he gives us a list. They enlarged the phylacteries. They lengthened their tassels. They loved the best seats at the banquets and the synagogues. And their greetings in the marketplaces to be called rabbi by people. They loved religious virtue signaling at its best. Look at me. Look at how much God must like me. It was their motivation. What's a phylactery? A phylactery was a little box. And in this box, it contained four different scriptures. I want to give those to you. You can look that up. But four different scriptures that would be on this little box. And what a phylactery was is they would put those four little scriptures in this little box, had two letters on either side of the box, and they would tie that box on their forehead. And the bigger the box, the better. And not only would they do that, but they would also tie one on their forearm with a certain number. There was a prescribed number of laces that would have to go around a certain finger and all around their arm, up to their arm, to make sure that everybody knew that they were following what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6.8. Bind God's words as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. In the, in the words of the Princess Bride... I don't think that scripture means what you think it means. <laughs> I don't think that's supposed to be interpreted, tie a big old box on your head <laughs> in terms of uh, okeyism <laughs> or a big old box on your arm. What is he saying there? Let the word of God infiltrate your mind. Let the word of God work its way out in your life. Let your thoughts and your confession and your deeds be from the word of God. You get this in here, it gets into here and comes out here. That's what the point is. And yet it was just an outward thing. Let everybody see how religious I am. Because I care about they missed the point they cared about religious showmanship same thing with the tassels nothing wrong with the tassels jesus wore them jesus wore the tassels would remind them of prayer but when they forget they made them as long as possible why so that everybody would see just how religious they were they used god's word and prayer to rather draw rather than draw the applause of heaven they used god's word and prayer to draw the applause of man to draw the applause and accolades of the world. If the world's applause is all we get, that's all we get. And then, I don't need to give you this news, you know this, the world is fickle. And what they applaud today, they will be booing tomorrow. What they think is wonderful today will tomorrow be paraded as horrific and is against the best of society isn't that what we see in today's world how do you know you're living for the praise of man let me give you something sarah walton in one of her books she writes the following she gives us a helpful diagnostic list helping us to diagnose our souls and whether or not we live for the praise of man it's so good i wanted to share it with you she says the following How do you know you live for the praise of man? You are motivated and unmotivated in your work, friendships, church, etc. by the praise or lack of praise of those around you. 
How do you know you're motivated by the praise of man? Your decisions are driven by other, what others will think. You are easily discouraged, irritated, or angry when your efforts are not appreciated by others or when others receive credit for something you have done. When others praise you, you begin to feel self-confident in your own abilities rather than relying on the Lord to lead and provide. How do you know you live for the praise of man? You are more drawn to the type of work and serving opportunities that will be noticed and praised by others. You struggle with competitiveness and envy when someone else succeeds or is given praise, even within the body of Christ. How do you know you live for the praise of man? You spend less time in the word and prayer and more time perfecting your craft, skill, job, or reputation, especially for pastors. You find comfort in making sure others see your pain and shower you with attention because of it. You might be living for the praise of man. Your relationships only go so deep so that your struggles aren't revealed. Don't want anybody to know about that. Your emotions and how you feel about yourself are constantly swayed by what you assume others think of you. And you only share a surface level of your faith out of fear of offending someone or giving up the percep- giving the perception that you are weak, strange, or narrow-minded. That's tough. Why be so tough in the sermons? Because Jesus is being tough in the passage. And I don't want you, I don't want to let you pass by this too quickly. Oh, I don't deal with the praise of man. <laughs> Friend, I would gather that we all deal with this addictive drug. How serious is this? John chapter 5, verse 44. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus says right there that seeking glory and the praise of man as our value short-circuits faith and causes us to long for a cheap substitute that cannot deliver. Replace the praise of man with a longing for the praise of God. How do you do it? Do it through prayer. How do you do it? Andrew Bonar, of the 19, a 19th century Scottish preacher, I commend his works to you. Read Andrew Bonar. He said the following. He said, it's not on the screen, just listen. He says, he knew that a Christian was growing when he talked more of Christ than about himself. Isn't that true? Let our conversation and our thoughts and our minds be consumed more and more and more with Christ and His Word and His perfections rather than seeking the praise of man. Final question is this, number four. Do you humbly seek authentic relationships with other believers? In verses 7 through 11, let's look at that again. He says they look for greetings in the marketplace. They long to be called rabbi by people. Look at verse 8. You're not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. You are not to call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You're not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah, the greatest among you will be your servant. The Pharisees had an incessant preoccupation with titles and power over relationships. That's the key. 
They had an incessant preoccupation with titles over relationships. You call me this. You refer to me as this. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. In my family, you're all brothers and sisters. It's not about being greater. In fact, what did Jesus say? The greatest among you shall be as one who, what? Serves. As one who takes the lowest place like Christ, wrapped a towel around his waist, knelt down, and washed one another's feet. That is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not titles that are necessarily wrong. In fact, we see other places in the New Testament where even some of these titles that Jesus just talked about are used, the exact words. Let me give you some examples in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For though you, this is Paul talking, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your, what? Father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Is Paul wrong there? He's sinning by writing that? No, of course not. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 says, And he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, ambassadors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. What he's condemning here, what Jesus is talking about here, is letting position come before service. To be great in the kingdom of Christ is to be as one who serves, even to the point of death. Taking the low road, wrapping a towel around your waist, seeking to serve one another in complete anonymity, if at all possible, so that only the God of heaven knows. That is the issue here. And isn't our Christ, the greatest servant of all, who, in the be, although being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took on the likeness of a servant and made himself nothing and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Wherefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the they gave Christ the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, the, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How does that passage start? Therefore, arm yourselves with the same attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. What Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 23 is there are two roads. There is the road of the Pharisee, and there is the road of Christ. Which one will you follow? In fact, exactly these questions, we can find the road of Jesus. Jesus practiced what he preached. Jesus didn't live for the approval of others. Jesus valued relationships, and Jesus was one of sacrificial service. Whom will you follow? in your life. Let's spend a moment of silence before we pray, and then let's respond.
Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that your word is like a double-edged sword. And there are some passages we come to that really serve to cut, to cut away the things that are unpleasing to you, to reveal in our souls some of the realities of indwelling sin, some of the ways we need to grow to show ourselves in the mirror and say, and so that we can humbly know afresh and anew our continuing need of Jesus. Lord, even as I preach this message, Lord, it is refining in my own soul. Lord, to desire and long to more and more practice what I teach to serve others, to Lord, to love one another, to preach faithfully, to stand on the word, to not live for the praise of man. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to apply your word to our lives this week. And even right now, as we respond, Lord, I pray that you would help us to say, Lord, help us to be not hearers of your word only, but help us to be doers of the word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.